uh, that we will be here next week to celebrate the Lord's uh, resurrection. But this is a special day uh, that we take, and I think it's appropriate to spend a day per year focusing on the resurrection. And uh, I'm, what a joy it is to be here with you guys. I love this day. Uh, there's, there's two Sundays a year, I feel like, uh, that the, what, the Sunday that we do breakfast at Christmas and the Sunday that we do breakfast at Easter, that I get up here really full to preach with you. And I don't mean full of the Spirit, I mean like full in my stomach. Um, so what a joy it is. I'm so happy to be here. And uh, yeah, let me pray for us. Father, I just want to add, add to uh, what's already been said, that we are, we are so thankful um, Thankful that we serve a risen Savior. Thankful that everything is different in this world, in all eternity, because He has risen from the dead. And we thank you that He has risen from the dead according to the Scriptures. You you told exactly what was going to happen, and it happened. And Father, you have told us so much else that is going to happen. And so we trust in those promises as well. Thank you for these people who have gathered here. Father, I pray for all the other congregations around this city and around the world today who are gathering. Father, I pray that eyes are being opened. I pray that hearts are understanding. And and may you do that for us as well. And we pray in, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so true confession. Sometimes I like to watch Antiques Roadshow on PBS. Uh, I would say I get drawn in more often than even I might expect. So those of you who aren't familiar with this show, here's the setup. Somebody brings some supposed piece of junk from their attic or from around their house, perhaps something that's been sitting there for years, and uh, they come in, and it's, it's, it's kind of a, a big yard sale atmosphere. Uh, an appraiser takes a look at the item and uh, the vast majority of items, of course, turn out to be absolutely worship, worthless, uh, but every now and then there's, there's a big surprise. So I, I, I listed a few out here for you. A Rhode Island woman brought a ceramic plate that she had bought for less than $100. It was hanging over her stove. It had been there for years collecting grease, and in 2014 she brought it into Antiques Roadshow. It turned out to be a Picasso worth $10,000. An Alabama man brought in a portrait of his grandfather that turned out to be painted by Remington, and it was appraised at between $600,000 and $800,000. What if if you brought a portrait of one of your relatives and it turned out to be worth that? Um, The biggest one ever, a woman brought in a collection of baseball cards that had been in the family for decades. Her great-great-grandmother had run a boarding house in Boston in 1871. The Boston Red Stockings had stayed there and had given her these baseball cards. They had stayed intact and together, and they were estimated to be worth over a million dollars. These weren't on Antique Roadshow. There was a Michigan man who had a 22-pound rock that he was using as a doorstep for 25 years, a doorstop. It turned out to be a meteorite, and he sold it for $100,000. Uh, And then, perhaps the most startling, maybe the most well-known, you've probably heard of this one, a man bought an old painting at a flea market for $4. He was having it redone, and under the canvas, 
someone had stashed away an original copy of the Declaration of Independence, one of only 500 copies from the first printing in 1776. It sold at auction for $2.4 million. So, who wouldn't love to find out that an old painting around your house had a copy of the Declaration of Independence in it? Something you see every day turns out to be a treasure. Jesus says in Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes out and sells all that he has and buys that field. And so this morning, as we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus from the dead, I am going to have you open your Bibles to a passage from the Old Testament. We did this on Friday night as well. We are going to consider the crucifixion and the resurrection of our Lord from Isaiah 53. So if you have a pew Bible, if you brought a Bible, get out your Bible, turn to Isaiah. It's in the Old Testament. It's actually one of the bigger books. If you kind of open to the middle of your Bible, you're probably getting pretty close to Isaiah. So just like we saw the crucifixion from Isaiah 53 on Friday night, we are going to look at the resurrection from Isaiah 53 this morning. And I hope that you will be able to find there some unexpected hidden treasure, because Isaiah 53 is the clearest presentation of the Messiah, especially his his ministry, his mission as a substitute for the sins of humanity outside the New Testament. As a matter of fact, I would, I would be willing to bet that if I just opened to this passage this morning and started reading without telling you where it was, you would probably think it was in the New Testament. So I hope, if nothing else, after this morning, that you will learn to cherish this chapter of the Bible and so before we read this passage, just because perhaps there may be some people in here who are new to the faith or who have questions about the faith, I just want to say maybe you're a skeptic about whether or not this passage was actually written 700 years before Christ. Because there are two things that are totally crazy about Christianity. One is miracles and the other is prophecy. Did people really do miracles and did people really predict things that were going to happen 700 years later. Well, let me tell you this, just so you know, in 1946-ish, they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? And it was this great cache of, uh, of scrolls, and, and in there was a complete Isaiah scroll that dates back to 300 years before the crucifixion of Christ. So whether or not you take Isaiah seriously, which I do, what they found in that jar at the Dead Sea dates to 300 years before the time of Christ. So, there's no doubt that this was written as prophecy, and I hope you'll see that what was written there has proven true of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, I'm going to read the passage for you. You can read along. We're actually going to start just over in chapter 52, verse 13, because that's where the passage begins, and read along with me as I read aloud this morning. Behold, my servant shall act wisely, he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred behind human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. In that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what, we have heard, what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made him his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet... It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So, if you see the Old Testament like a dusty box that's in an attic somewhere, something that, that, that is just hidden away that you never look at, please see that what we have here is treasure. And we find it, we find in it rather the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, written down more than 2,700 years ago. Okay, so let's look then at the introduction of the Lord's servant, okay? And for those of you here, we're here on Friday night, this is going to be a little bit of review, but if, if you've got this down, you know, you're better than me. We can all stand to, to learn this uh, more and more as we hear it, okay? Um, so, the book of Isaiah is a mix of warning and comfort. The book of Isaiah, chapters 1 through 39, is predicting largely judgment on God's people. They're going to be taken away into Babylon. And then beginning in chapter 40, Isaiah preaches comfort. He preaches comfort to the people. They're in Babylon. What are they going to do? Have God's promises been forgotten? No, they haven't been forgotten. God is going to make good on his promises, and he's going to send one who in Isaiah is referred to repeatedly as the suffering servant. And this suffering servant has these four suffering servant songs, the servant songs as they're called in Isaiah. And just so you know, this is the fourth one. We're in the fourth servant song describing in detail this Messiah, this servant of the Lord who is going to to come. So God's plan centers upon this one who will come and save his people. It begins this, this song in, in verse 13 of chapter 52. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. 
he shall be high and lifted up and be exalted. And I just want to remind you, probably many of you have heard the verse from Isaiah 6, chapter 1, where Isaiah, in the year that King Uzziah died, he has a vision. He says, I saw the Lord. He was high and lifted up. He was in the, in the, the temple. His, he was seated on his throne. It says, the train of his robe filled the temple. So Isaiah has this glorious vision of the Lord who is high and lifted up. And here, Isaiah says once again, behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. There's only one who is high and lifted up, and that is the Lord God himself, the one who sits in the heavens. Jewish interpreters want to say that this passage is about Israel. Liberal interpreters want to say, well, it's just a man. It's just some man who's going to come and he's going to live obedient and he's going to be a really good man, and he's going to lead Israel. But what we see here is that neither of these explanations will do. This is clearly a man who is God, very God. He is the one in whom Paul says the fullness of deity dwells. And what's so strange about this passage is that this one who is high and exalted is also a servant. He is the one who always does the bidding of the Father. Fallen men seek to exalt themselves, but the servant of the Lord, though exalted, has humbled himself. And so here we find this enigma. How can one be exalted and humble? Who has ever heard of such a thing? And once again, remind you, I want to remind you, we're reading this with New Testament eyes. We know that Jesus came and he died on the cross, but imagine how strange this would have been to an Old Testament hearer who is saying, how can the servant of the Lord be high and lifted up and yet also despised and marred? The Lord's servant is hideous. Verse 14, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Other versions translate, versions translate this appalled. His appearance is disfigured. It's distorted. One of the great mysteries that we always talk about regarding Jesus and, 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 and his trial is how did those same people who cried for him, Hosanna, and who wanted to be king, wanted to make him king when he came into Jerusalem, cry out and say, crucify him on Friday? And I think the answer is that the man who stood before them on, on Pilate's seat, who was beaten and bloodied, with a crown of thorns, whipped. They were like, this man is not our king. We're, we're so thoroughly disappointed in this man's appearance. We don't want this man to rule over us. So here we have a man that is both exalted and humiliated. But look at verse 15. This appalling one will shut the mouths of kings. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. He is going to sprinkle many nations. This word for sprinkle here is the same as purify. Like in purifying or cleansing a leper. He will cleanse the nations. What is this? I thought he was going to be the king of the Jews. Well, he is that, but the servant of the Lord is up to something that is going to shut the mouths of kings. And brothers and sisters, the, the Jews made, hated many things about Jesus, but they especially hated his willingness to engage with Gentiles. Gentiles were dirty. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, John describes 
that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders, the chief priests, waited outside the house of Pilate because they didn't want to be defiled before they took the Passover. They were willing to murder an innocent man and eat the Passover, but they weren't willing to go inside Pilate's house. What's also interesting to me is that Pilate, in the record, in John, declares Jesus not guilty. I find no fault with this man five times, and he sends him to the cross because he's a coward, and he doesn't want to have any more trouble with the Jews. I think we could say that Pilate had his mouth shut by the servant of the Lord. Let me just summarize this enigma, because that's what it is, right? It's an enigma. The servant of the Lord is exalted, but he is a servant. He is marred as, so a, ma- so a, as a man who, who, from whom t- men turn away their faces, and he will sprinkle the nations clean and shut the mouths of kings. Which brings us then to Isaiah 53 in verses 1 through 10. And I, we walked through it on Friday night. It's, it's available on the podcast if you want to listen to it. But I just want you to notice two things about this passage because it's so helpful to understand it. Number one, the tense of the passage switches from something that is going to happen in the future to something that has already happened in the past. These people are speaking in the past tense. The other thing that switches are the pronouns. So before this, God, Yahweh, was speaking, I, my servant, I will do this. In this portion of the passage, it says, who would have believed? Why didn't we believe? Who would have believed our report? Okay, so what's going on here is this is a lament, beginning in verse 1, written by a group of people, specifically the Jews, who in the future are going to look back and say, we were fools. Our Messiah came. He was disfigured. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Who would have thought? Look at verses 1 and 2. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The servant of the Lord came, and we did not recognize him. The servant of the Lord came, and his own people refused to believe. John 1, 9 through 11 says, The true light, which gives light to every man, man, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Have you ever missed something and thought, what a fool I was, what a fool I was. How how did I miss this? To pass up on a chance to to purchase something that ended up being really valuable. You know, oh, 20 years ago, I I had a chance to purchase this plot of land and it seemed like it was just worthless and now that same plot of land is worth millions of dollars. To look back at an opportunity and think, oh, if I had just taken that opportunity, my life would have turned out completely different. The people speaking in Isaiah 53, 1 through 10, they are realizing that there was something of utmost value, something divine had entered into the sphere of humanity, and they didn't just ignore it, they despised it. And the hardest thing to believe was that he died. Verse 9, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living? To be cut off from the land of the living means that Jesus died. This is what nobody expected. They should have. 
Jesus says to Peter, to the disciples, I'm going to die, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again in three days. And Peter grabs him by the robes and takes him aside and says, Jesus, never, never will this happen. And Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, because you're, you're not about God's plan here, you're about Satan's plan. This was the plan all along. Verses 5 and 6, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Here we have the essential truth of the gospel written down 700 years before Jesus, that Jesus died in the place of sinners. He took the punishment we deserve. He was pierced. He was crushed. Brothers and sisters, left to yourself, your sins will crush you. They may seem like little sins right now, little lies, little glances, little thoughts, but God's patience will run out, and your sins will be crushed, and they will either be crushed in you for all eternity, separated from God in a place that is real called hell, or they would be crushed in the Lord Jesus Christ, this servant of the Lord who came and died in the place of human beings. And the sinful hearts of every generation says with this, with this generation right here, we don't want this man to rule over us. He is not the king we want. But this generation, this future generation, hear them now. If you don't know this Savior, hear them now offering this warning, recognizing that they misunderstood. Why didn't we believe? Verses 7 through 9 detail his trial, his death, his burial. Who would have thought that a man so despised, so disfigured, and so abandoned would be the promise, the promised servant of the Lord? I ask you this morning to consider that you also may have misunderstood and that you, if you stay on the path you're on, might say one day, I have been such a fool. It was revealed to me, and I didn't believe. The truth is that Jesus Christ died in the place of sinners. That is the heart of the good news. It is the most valuable thing in the universe. It is the difference between heaven and hell. Whatever seems important to you right now pales in comparison. And I beg of you to open your eyes this morning. Believe that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And I want us to turn and see the glory of the Lord's servant. Because verse 10 switches back. Verse 10 switches back to the first person, and it switches back to the future. <laughs> the servant's song now comes back to God's perspective. So the servant of the Lord is the substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of humanity, but he was cut off for the, from the land of the living. Okay, so just think about this. What good does that do us? What good does it do if the servant of the Lord is dead? How can that be a help to humanity? Well, here's the thing. He's not dead. He has come back to life. Within that tomb, on that Sunday, his heart began to beat again. And whatever decomposition, whatever damage had been done to his body was suddenly and gloriously recreated 
into a new and glorious body. When you read the accounts of the gospel records, I always point out, there's a breathlessness there. Everything about the crucifixion and the trial and all these things, there's all of these quotes and all of these things from the Old Testament, but once we get to the resurrection, it's like some people saw this and some people saw this and nobody seems to know what was going on and somebody needs to go tell Peter. All they know is that the tomb is empty because no one expected Jesus to rise from the dead. He told them he was going to rise from the dead. He said, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die and in three days I'm going to rise, rise again. But not one of the 11 went to see what was going on on Sunday morning. So here's the question. Should they have expected the resurrection? Was it in the Old Testament? Or more to the point for our study this morning, is it here in Isaiah 53? Yes, it is. Look at verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper his hand. He shall see his offspring. Having made an offering for guilt, Isaiah says, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The Lord will prosper his hand. The seed are his spiritual children. He will see those for whom he died. How can he see them if he's dead? He is alive. There is a harvest of humanity that is to be made alive because Jesus is alive and he sees all of them. Hebrews 2.10 says he died to bring many sons to glory. In verse 11, Isaiah says, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Is there anything better than experiencing the fruit of your work? I have a, I have a love-hate relationship with mowing the lawn. I hate thinking of doing it, but while I'm doing it, I always think, this isn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. But you know what I love? After, after spending the day mowing the lawn and pruning the hedges and raking and things, I love to just go back and look at it. It's very satisfying, right? It's very satisfying to see the work that you've done. Isaiah says, out of the anguish of his soul, he will see and be satisfied. What must it be like right now for the risen Christ seated on the throne next to the Father to look out over congregations like ours all over this world who are gathering today in the worship and the praise of him and that he can see the fruit of his anguish. Multitudes have been redeemed by the blood of our Savior. Jesus sits in the heavens this morning enjoying the fruits of his labor. The New Testament calls us the first, calls him the first fruits, and then we will be the fruits of that harvest because he was raised to new life. It was the will of God to crush him and put him to grief as a grief offering, to, to, to grief as a guilt offering. Brothers and sisters, if you are a Christian, Christ went to great effort to save you. Had the servant of the Lord stayed dead, we could not have known for sure that our sins were atoned for. Had he stayed dead, we'd be living today wondering if he really was who he was and if he really did what he said he did. How depressing that would be. He came, he claimed to be the Lord, Lord of glory, and then he died. And now we're back where we started. It's a really big deal that Jesus raised from the dead because he lives, Isaiah 53 absolutely 
explodes with meaning. Paul says in Romans 1.4, He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. How can a sinner be forgiven fully by a holy God so as to escape hell? By sacrifice, the guilt offering of the servant of the Lord. How can we know? Because God raised him from the dead, according to the scriptures, which we see in Isaiah, way back in the Old Testament. The last part of this passage tells us that we can know the servant of the Lord. How many kings do you know? Presidents? Prime ministers? Governors? Mayors? You got any of those in your speed dial? I don't. Look at verse 11. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. It says, by his knowledge, but that could just as easily be translated by the knowledge of him. By knowing him, my servant, the servant of the Lord, many will be accounted righteous. Do you know? You can know the Messiah, the servant of the Lord the coming king, the one who sits at the right hand of the throne of God right now. You can know him. You can talk to him. You can be his friend. How can you be his friend? He says in John 15, right before he dies, he says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. The servant of the Lord has died for our sins He has been raised up to new life, and now we can know him. Do you know him? Would you call him friend? How is this possible? Who would believe it? That we could be called a friend of the Lord. There is treasure here. Brothers and sisters, please hear me. This is why I started with the Antiques Roadshow. There is treasure here. If your Bible is sitting on its shelf collecting dust, I want to let you know that there is treasure there. One of my favorite psalms is Psalm 16. It's a celebration of the goodness of God. Verse 10 is often cited as another Old Testament prophecy of the resurrection. It says, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor let your Holy One see corruption. But listen to verse 11 right after that. You make me to know the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Who sits at the right hand of the Father? The risen Lord, exalted Christ Jesus. At, the, at God's right hand, there are pleasures forevermore, and there sits Jesus, the servant of the Lord. And by, by believing in him, by trusting in him, by obeying him, you can know him. We're going to read together in just a few minutes when Tyler comes back up here. We're going to read together Philippians 2, 5 through 11. And as we read that, I want you to pay attention because Philippians 2, 5 through 11 is Paul bringing together the enigma of the Lord Jesus Christ. How can one so despised be so exalted? We're going to read that together in just a few minutes. But first, let me just say this. Let's just imagine that there could be some cosmic appraiser antiques roadshow for the whole universe all the aliens from their planets bring their trinkets from different planets to bring to this cosmic appraiser i was digging around in my attic and i found this old book and deep inside this old book right in the middle there's this servant song let me show it to you and you tell me if this is valuable that cosmic appraiser would say what you have found 
is the most valuable thing in the universe. You've had it right there all along. It's been accessible to you all along. It contains the path of life, the way to glory. It describes the one in whose presence is fullness of joy. He's alive. And just to add one more piece, he's coming again, and everybody is going to see this time his glory. There will be no more humiliation. There will only be the glory of the coming Lord Jesus. Who would have believed it? May God open our eyes to embrace these things and to understand them. Let me pray. Father, once again, we thank you for the one who was pierced for our transgressions, who was crushed for our iniquities. Father, thank you that our sin, the sin that we are so fully responsible for, that we have chosen, that we have entered into, is crushed at the cross of Jesus Christ. Father, I ask you, I beg of you, I plead with you that everyone in the sound of my voice right now would come to believe that and would know that he is alive according to the scriptures. May we rejoice one day in eternity to think back on this day when we had this breakfast and we sang these songs and we read these passages in this room together. Remember that day, remember that day, that cold day in April when we got together and we worshiped the risen Lord Jesus. And now, may we do so for all eternity. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.